a Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Christopher Pine, and welcome to Pine Time. For years, I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, some would say abuse, from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together, and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game, and I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the pine effect. My guest today is Amanda Vanstein. Amanda Eloise Vanstein, the youngest child of four, lawyer, senator, small business woman, owner of print and art shops, and I think cheese shops. No, not a shop. I sold cheese from the boot of my car, actually. Well, not from the boot of my car. I got, picked it up from the aeroplane and delivered it straight to the cheese provador and a retailer, a buyer for, was it David Jones or Myers? Myers. A buyer for Myers, cabinet minister, and now retired uh, ambassador, broadcaster. You've had quite a exciting career. Well, an interesting life. I mean, who who wrote that? Was it A.B. Facey who wrote... Uh, a fortunate, uh, a fortunate, a fortunate life. life. Yes, yeah, he, did. he got it wrong. I've had the fortunate life. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> Facey, he, he didn't really have a fortunate no, life, though. But he he saw himself as fortunate, which is great. Mm. So you've been you've done a lot of different things, and interestingly enough, you haven't done them all in a hurry. Like you went into because the Senate. I'm slow. Well, you went into the Senate at thirty-one, which is young. Yeah. But by then, you'd already done quite a lot of different things, like you hadn't been a lawyer for 10 indecisive, years. Indecisive, indecisive, that is, really. I no, I don't think so. I think it's because you just liked to try lots of different things and That's see probably. what they're like. Probably. And I can, I can remember not being certain about trying for federal parliament because, as you know, I tried for state parliament and my guardian angel, Unley. who was on duty those days, <laughs> and made, council. made sure I was not selected for yes, state parliament. Yes, you had quite a few defeats before you won. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, but my guardian angel was there and I wasn't a little bit apprehensive about federal parliament because Tony and I hadn't been married very long and it's a lot of time away, yada, yada, yada. And he said to me, it's not a prison sentence. Unless you can always get out I'd, of it. I'd be, I'd be disappointed if you didn't, compl- having asked for a term, if you didn't complete a term. But, you know, if you really hate it, you can walk away. Well, And you didn't even I think ended up the longest serving female cabinet minister since Federation and stayed for 20-something years. The longest serving female cabinet minister since hmm. Federation. Yeah. That's a big achievement. If you regard time as an achievement. Well, that's It's really true. a milestone that just shows how few women we've had in, I suppose. There's something mind about you, longevity, though. Yeah, mine about twenty, about twenty or so ministers were dispatched under the Howard government before me. Mm, it's a, it was a well, it was very tricky. Remember, in the first Howard government, we lost three ministers in one week. Mm. That wasn't very good over travel allowances. A bit messy. And you didn't even know you'd been elected. Do you remember you were in the bath? Oh, it's you and Robert Hill had told me that the polling wasn't very good. It looked like we wouldn't win Sturt, which later became your seat, and we wouldn't get enough senators, senate positions for me to get in. So I'm lolling in the bath and 
<laughs> Tony comes running in saying, get up, we've got to go to the parties. I said, look, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to put on a happy face. This has taken years <laughs> to get to this point, to get endorsement for the Senate and then to be hit by this poll negative swing is just so unlucky and I'm not going to be happy and, you know, people deserve to be happy. He said, don't be ridiculous. I've just spoken to somebody in Sydney and the polling's closed there and and they've got results that aren't being shown here and you're you're going to be in like Flint. And that was 1984. Out of the bath, off to the parties. And left in 2006? Seven. Seven. And then off to Rome. Off to Rome, yeah. And I started working for you in 1985. You started being paid by the Commonwealth. That's a moot point as to whether you actually worked for me. <laughs> Do you remember um, how I got that job? Do you remember my, my first communication with you? No. I wrote you a lovely handwritten letter. A lovely handwritten letter, <laughs> oh, okay. A first-year uni student in my longhand, which I don't, I'm sure you, you have somewhere hidden away, um, no, I don't. So I didn't realise it was going to be of historical. It would be surprising to me if you hadn't had it framed. Actually, no, well, um, <laughs> sadly, I think it was framed in the bin. <laughs> I don't think so. You keep everything, and that's why you have to keep buying new houses because it's the only way of getting rid of things. Tony thinks that. Yeah, I think he's right. And I wrote you a note saying, if you were smart, you would hire me in your office, and um, you <laughs> rang my mother and said. I've had this this letter from Christopher saying he wants to come work in my office. And she said, she was at Undercar Road, she said, oh, you might as well give him a go. You know, if he's no good, you can always get rid of him. And I started working, in fact, I started working for you and got you on your way. Is this about me or you? Both of us. Right, okay. At what I was 18. Yeah. And we've been friends ever since. That's true. I like to think we were sort of friends before then, but well, there were a few a, testing times. I mean... The time when you chuck some franked envelopes into the bin, this is when you were new and stupid, <laughs> and uh, I said, can you lend me a dollar? No, I'm You gave me a stupid. dollar in coins mm. and I went out and threw them in the gutter in Harley Street. You <laughs> said, what are you doing? What are you doing, you mad woman? I said, you've just I thrown misfranked envelopes into the bin when you can go down and get a credit. That's Commonwealth money and you shouldn't just chuck it in the bin because you pressed the wrong button on the franking machine mm. and you were appalled. That was your office in Hindley Street? Yeah. I think the Liberals were a bit looked a bit askance when you decided to have an office in Hindley Street. I was there for about ten years, I think. I didn't like squirting the vomit out of the front veranda. No, well, we we went to where the people were. <laughs> they were um, definitely there. You know, there's no point in they in, in my view having behind. an office in the eastern suburbs if you're a senator. You might as well go somewhere and spread the message. And Hindley Street was a good spot for that. The people in Hindley Street left a bit of themselves behind for us in the morning. Sometimes that's why I had a pressurised hose. <laughs> I do remember the pressurised hose, Hindley Street. But that was fun. That was kind of your persona was to sort of do something different to everybody else. Yeah, why not? We got, we got to know the Greek taverns of Hindley Street. That's true. The Chinese restaurants. But that's not a bad point, actually, that you, you make. Um, if you're wanting a job and you're wanting to do just the same as the people before did, why are you asking for the job? But a lot of people do. Oh, they waste the time. And then measure their success on how many years they were there. No, 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 that's not how you do it. What was the, So a couple of times, did, did you feel like there were, mo- there were weeks when you were facing real political mortality? But you knew that not the really. No, I mean, I knew that Howard didn't regard me as his best friend. That was sort of no. Un- but there were, were there controversies. You thought, oh God, this could go really badly for me. Oh, I could be out of my butt by the end of the week. I felt that when I did that speech at the um, 
Black Hand dinner when Malcolm was the Prime Minister. I don't know that I did. There was something I can remember. Someone moved a motion of no confidence or something in the lower house. I don't know. Because Howard and you didn't have a wonderful relationship, really. No, he didn't, I don't think he liked me. Professional relationship. But that was the other funny thing. The thing is that Howard, I think, respected your popularity with the public and that you could connect with them and you could communicate to them and sell them a message. I don't think you were necessarily his first choice as a dinner companion. I definitely wasn't. No. In fact, the only times I got invited to dinner was when everyone else got invited. And once I said to Robert Hill, look, you and I don't really enjoy these dinners. Why don't we just piss off and go somewhere else, you know? <laughs> we'll say we've got a meeting. He said, are you pleased to be back in Cabinet? And I said, yes. He said, then you'll be pleased to go to the Cabinet Christmas dinner. Definitely. It's a must. Hmm. Incidentally, I was pleased because Downer was, I can remember this with crystal clarity. How was at the end of the table, then there was Downer on one side and then me next to Downer. And Downer was chatting away and, you know, it'd be unkind to call it sucking up, but it was, you know, positive conversation he was having with Howard. And this was the time people were asking for an inquiry into DFAT and whether they'd been unhelpful in revealing whether there were any people who were, had a tendency to want to engage with children Shady in the department. Right. And so I said to Howard, oh, I've got a joke. Oh, no. Joke to tell you. So oh, down and looks, no. you know. I said, do you know why people like DFAT? It's the only department with closet heterosexuals. <laughs> <laughs> Howard thought it was very funny, but Downer was not amused. Not amused. No, that would have been a disaster. Poor oh. Downer, but Howard would have laughed a lot. He thought it was very funny. He would have. So your father died at three. When I was young, yeah, three. Mr O'Brien. Yeah. So you didn't know very much of him. Do you have much of a memory of your dad? No, I don't think you can put that, uh, really clarify that because obviously you have some photos and you have stories that your brothers and sisters tell, so you tend mm. to animate them in your brain. And you were the youngest. Yeah, you animate them in your brain and then you can't really tell what you remember and what you don't. No. But, but was he a big gregarious character? I wouldn't say that, no. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. But, I mean, you're obviously a very gregarious, extroverted person. No, that's not true, you actually. So. When you do those tests, the Myers-Briggs tests. Yes, <laughs> what were you? Which are not, uh, you know, a guarantee of anything, but they do give you an indication. I've done them four or five times because the they? office used to do it. Oh. So we would understand each other better, you know. Right. these are. Do you put much store behind those tests? Well, when they come out the same every time mm. and it shows I'm a borderline introvert. Is that right? Well, I'm on the border. I'm a borderline extrovert and a borderline introvert, and I quite like my own time. You're lucky to have this time with me. I'm quite, you know, happy with myself. Well, I'm a bit extroverted. In the, in the case of spending time with myself, I'm, I like to think and pot so around. And Carolyn, I know you're an extrovert. You didn't need to say that. Carolyn's an introvert, mm. so she has really enjoyed the coronavirus. Yeah, I bet she has having you home. God help me. <laughs> no, she, she's really enjoyed not having to go and see people. Oh, yeah, but she's got you there. All day. She has been very fortunate to have me at home, uh, hmm. where I've been assisting her with a bit of advice about cooking and tidying and what the house should look like and what should go in the garden. Mm. She doesn't pay any attention <clears throat> to me, of course, with my advice. So um, then your mother married again. Yep. Jim Brazzle. Yep. Who was a Supreme Court judge. Yep. And that's when really I think our family connection began because Lavorne, your stepsister, one of my stepsisters. One of your stepsisters. Was your mother's best friend. Was my mother's best friend. Well, one of her best friends. One of her best friends, and she unfortunately died too long ago now. Not my mother, Lavorne. And then 
poor old Jim Brazzle passed away and Lily married again. Well, not that quick. He passed away and we thought she'd never marry again. She right. said she'd never marry again, but some 12 or so years later she did. She married and then she was a Finlay. Yeah. She was a bit of a character, your mother. Yes, I said to her one day, you know, you've been unlucky, really. Yes, uh, well, she was very unlucky to lose two husbands. Well. And then a third because she outlived Mr Finlay. Yeah. And she had quite a useful response, I think. Uh, she said, not many women can be lucky enough to find three men that love them enough to marry them. Oh. Well, she was a nice person, Lily. Tough person, too. Strong. I say nice is not always a word everyone would use. No, she was have, strong. But that carries a, a sort of... A grain of, of, more than a grain, a morsel of truth in it that you, you know, uh, like Monty Python says, always look on the bright side. No, you she can sit a... around and say, oh, poor me, I've had these husbands die, oh, people should feel sorry for me. And she says, well, you know, I was lucky. I had three guys that loved me enough to marry me. So youngest child lived in Norwood a bit? College Park to start with, then yeah. um, Kensington Gardens, and then Norwood, predominantly Norwood. But Norwood wasn't... Norwood like today. Oh, no, no. Norwood's oh, very... Norwood um, do, yeah. Norwood's very trendy yeah, Norwood now. Norwood do. You're like they used to say, oh, does, you, does your stepfather go to St Ignatius, does he? Because we were Anglicans, you see. <laughs> right. Adelaide was very sectarian. There's a lot of people up themselves think because they're Anglican, you know, they're somehow better. Or they think because they've got a good job, they're somehow better. When you, when you manage to step back from it, there are heaps of people out there who think they're just naturally... Lucky and therefore better than everyone else because they were lucky to be born in the right religion, religious family, or they were lucky to be, sure. you know, whatever. It's all rubbish, but still. But I think that growing up in Norwood, the youngest child of four, with three, with losing your father young, and then Jim, and then Mr. Finlay later on, and is all part of the way your personality developed into being very um, resilient and optimistic. Yeah, I, I got resilience and optimism from my mother, for sure. And uh, your view was, well, I've just got to take the world on myself and that's why I'm going to do an art shop, a print shop, but I'm going to do cheese out of the back of my car and I'll do a bit of buying at um, Myers and then I'll do law later in life. I mean, not later in life, but you didn't do it straight out of school. You did no. it in your 20s. And then being a lawyer. Well, no one in my family had been to university and it wasn't really a thought. You know, I had, I'd had no... Breakfast time, I think, is very important for families and I'd had no breakfast time with people who'd been to university to tell right. me what it was like and what I could learn and what doors it would open. So that took a bit of time. It's interesting, isn't to it? To come to that point, yeah. But a lot of people wouldn't have done that. Maybe not. They wouldn't have thought, well, now I'm going to go back to uni. Mm. They would have thought, well, actually, I'm, I'm running a shop and that's what I'm going to be doing. But you thought, well, I'm going to do that and then I'm going to try this and then I'm going to do a bit of law and now I might actually go into politics. Mm. So, not Although, the, as you alluded to so kindly earlier, the Liberal Party took a while to warm to me. As you pointed out, I had a couple of, you said, quite a few losses, and that is true, well, in standing for pre-selection. They didn't just say, yeah, hey, great, I want you. But you're I? a strong-willed personality. Well, look, if, you, if, if someone just says no and you say, oh, okay, and walk away, well, <laughs> that's it. But when you came into the Senate, there were a lot of strong-willed women in the Senate. Jocelyn Newman... Yourself. She might not have been there when I got there, but Kate there were. There Patterson, were over Susie time. Knowles. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. There was quite a group. Yeah. You might have forgotten this, but actually I worked for you in the old Parliament House. No, I remember that. And I used to fly myself to Canberra. Oh, this old. Stay, stay with my cousins, Andrew and Mary Evans. You used to 
badger me whether you could come and I and you as a volunteer me. and uh, <laughs> you were a volunteer in the office and you want to come to Commonwealth to take you to Canberra. They don't take volunteers. No. So you said, well, I'll pay for myself. So okay, you can come. I did. I used to fly myself there, stay with my cousins, get myself to Parliament House and work for you. Yes, that was the description given to your activities. <laughs> Lucky sure. me. And I remember one night there was, um, at well after work hours, of course, you, you had those strong-willed women around for a drink. Yep. And you said, you can make us all a martini. I didn't know how to make a martini. That's an important life skill for you. <laughs> it because. is a very important life skill. So I made everybody a martini as best I could and then you said, you have one yourself, have one yourself. So I had one and then... Everybody had their martini and you said, we'll have a second round of martinis. And uh, you looked at me and you said, are you going to be able to make those martinis? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't think I can. So I knocked myself out with my first martini, oh, well. which is also an important life lesson. Yes. Well, your, your capacity's improved since then, obviously. It yeah. has. So when you were in the Senate, you were in and out of the shadow ministry during the hideousness of the Howard Peacock period. Um you were in on the rotisserie, as it was unfortunately called, and then you were popped out and then came back when Peacock was made leader again in 89 and then popped out again in 1990, then back in 93, and after 93 you never left the front bench. No, I left Cabinet, though, having yeah. achieved all the government asked of me in 96-7, the biggest amount of savings that any minister had to provide. 24%. Yeah, of the government savings. And, and I get the flick because I'm unpopular. Well, you know, it's not, it's not easy to be popular saying to people, guess what, you're going to get less or pay more. They were banning it. They were burning effigies of you. Yeah, but anyway, look what was done. And, uh, they burnt effigies of me as well. Though. And I, I survived. A, a so, badge of honour to be burnt by the students in effigy. I'm told that when... You're I think the only cabinet, one of the very few cabinet ministers, I think, in history. The only one, Peter Reith tells me. The only cabinet minister who's been dropped to the outer ministry and then managed to get them back in under the same prime minister. Uh, except for people who've maybe st- voluntarily, well, voluntarily, they say, mm. stood aside while some inquiry was in. Oh, but in terms of, them. yeah, getting the flick from the Prime Minister and yeah. coming back. No, that, they, were, they left in controversy and might have come back when the controversy had passed. was over. There is a story that someone said to Howard, you know you're going to have to get Vanstone back, don't you? And apparently dropped his shoulders and said, yes. <laughs> but I think those three years that you were in the um, junior ministry in Justice and Customs, you had a great oh, time. Oh, fabulous. Look, working with the Coppers it. and Customs, that was the best <laughs> Years of my life. I used to love watching you smashing up the compact discs with your um, big hammers and no, the even better one, with the dogs, the Labradors. Yeah, they were lovely. All the customs Labradors are just beautiful. But uh, what was real fun was burning up a whole lot of heroin or cocaine. I can't remember. There's a place mm. in Sydney they take it. Mm, big furnace uh, of some kind, isn't and it? And so they got all the coppers there with guns to guard this huge <laughs> truck of stuff and uh, whack it in the furnace, and up it goes. And it's a real pleasure to look down the camera and say, if you're watching and that's your heroin, it's gone. You're not getting it back. It's gone. There it is in smoke behind you. value. So that, but I think Justice and Customs was fun and got you back into the cabinet where you belonged. But going back to the 80s, so the Howard Peacock period, so what what the hell was that all about? Oh, it was ugly. Ugly. Just absolute competition between the two and... More often than not, I think, competition between their supporters who, you know, wanted their person come what may rather than focusing on the team. And I've always had a view, if you've got the leader, unless they completely stuff up, even if you don't like them, they are the leader 
and you just get on with the job. If they stuff up badly, well, of course, like everyone else, they might get the axe. Mm. But not everyone had that view. They'd see an opportunity to promote their person and create instability in order to get their person in. So it wasn't a good working environment. Do you think it kept us out of office for all those years? Of course it did. Mm. Do you have any opinion about whether the leadership instability in the last dozen years, which everyone says is unprecedented and shocking and terrible, which of course it is, is actually unprecedented or was it just as bad in the in that Peacock-Howard It'd be interesting rivalry. to go and get the dates and, and see how many times we changed. That was within the Liberal Party, whereas the, what's been happening lately is across both parties. Exactly. There have been um, changes in leadership. I, I think there's another uh, factor in there and that is the increase in the size of Parliament. I think there was one in between time. And what that means is you get an increase in the size of the Senate. Yes. Because the reps has to be double the Senate. Yeah. Because you increase the size of the Senate, the proportion of votes you need to get a Senate seat goes down. Goes right down. And so you have, especially when you have a double dissolution, a much lower bar for people to get in. And so there have been more independents mm. getting into the Senate. Now, you know, the purist in me says, well, if that's what people vote for, that's fine. But I don't think people, if you went to people who voted for independence and said, do you really want a system where there are two or three people who can hold the government of the day to ransom, I don't think they'd say, yeah, I think that's a great way to govern the country. No. But that's what happens. The more you increase the size of parliament, the more you make it easier to get in the Senate and the more you allow more independence in. And they think, because they hold the balance of power, that they have the right to tell a government what to do. And there's a long debate you can have about that. You know, they got elected, fair enough, in their own right, and that was their platform, yes. But they ignore that many, many more people got elected on the government benches and they should show some <laughs> deference to that. And the independents no I've seen that. have no regard for that. None. And, of course, that very instability that that engenders makes the job of the Prime Minister almost impossible A to lot deliver. harder, yeah, sure. So Abbott had his budget in 2014, which, you know, it was had its faults, and everyone accused him of breaking his um, election promises, which is possible, and um, most I think of you're it- being a bit kind there. He did, bra- <laughs> he did break election promises and he insisted on having some things in that budget that Joe Hockey got blamed for and it was completely unfair. It was all ha- uh, Abbott's effort, that ridiculous thing uh, of paying uh, maternity leave of half a wage. I mean, what are we doing saying to people, here's $70,000? Mm. Just because you're lucky enough to have a better job will give you more money. I mean, it was never going to run. But then also by the time his leadership was limping along in mid-2015, almost all of those measures that had gone to the Senate and the budget hadn't got through, hmm. which, as you know, the, the independents, I think there were sort of nine or something, we kept refusing to vote for anything. Yeah, well, that's a test of political skill too. Not uh, sure whether you can get stuff through, but whether you put stuff up that you should know you haven't got a hope it in hell It was a bit of a up. crazy time. But the craziest thing I have to say about the Abbott government was bringing back the knighthoods. Now, Bringing back the knighthoods. Don't start me. Right. <laughs> it was just so dumb. And on Australia Day, do you mind? But bringing back the knighthoods and making Dame Quentin Bryce and Sir Peter Cosgrove knights, you know, I thought that was a bad idea because I was against the knighthoods. But then I think making the Duke of Edinburgh a knight was the end of the road. I don't think he ever recovered from that on Australia Day. Sure. No, I agree. And uh, when I say I don't mind Peter Cosgrove uh, accepting a knighthood because I, I, I don't know him that well. I mean, I met him in East Timor when I went there with the federal police during that 
horrendous time for the police. And but the, he was the Governor General. Yeah, but no, I think that's more of his thinking. But Quentin Bryce seems to be just someone who's a Republican. I'd be surprised that she accepted. But anyway, <laughs> that's a good point. But <laughs> now, if she'd said no, see, no is a very powerful word. If she'd said no, I don't think Abbott could have gone ahead with it. He would have found somebody well, else. Someone would have said, listen, she or someone who works for her is going to leak that, that you offered it and she said no, and that'll make her a lioness and you'll look an idiot. But now that I've been looking back because I've been writing this book and I've been, no- I've been actually looking at things like what the polls were like back in those days, I mean, it was so bad in that period in terms of support from the voting public and then the the knighthoods and, you know, even Bill Shorten was more popular than Tony Abbott in that period before mid-2015. I think the mistake Abbott made is the mistake we've just talked about where uh, that some independents make, and that is they think because they've got elected and they've been honest with the public about their views that they are entitled to push them at all costs onto other people showing no respect for the number of people elected who don't share those views. Mm. I saw Abbott as someone who was single-mindedly wanting to get his way. And that's not how Parliament works effectively. You can have your views and you can push them, sure. I mean, you'd be an idiot if you didn't and you'd be weak and, and not worth your salt if you didn't push them. But if you don't do so with respect to the number of other people who've got different views from yours who were also elected, then you're showing disrespect to the public who elected them. And it could be fatal to you as a leadership position. It should be. But that's interesting from your point of view, isn't it? Well, not, well it might not be, but I think it is. Because you were there when Howard was leader the first time, mm. 85 to 89. Whenever, you. Yeah. And then you were lead, obviously there when he was leader the second time. And I think, having been around the traps, I was on federal executive and so on and working for you and things, that Howard was a completely different fish the second time Absolutely. around. Absolutely. He learnt. Because he'd learnt that lesson, hadn't Absolutely. He? And, and he I th- think in the later years started to not forget it but think, well, you know, these are my last years, I might as well go for broke on what I think. So do you think Howard should have handed over to Costello before the 2007 election? Like I think, 12 if, I think if Costello wanted the leadership, he should have took it. History shows, I'm not a great history buff, but I think it does show that power is very rarely given away. Mm, it's got to be wrenched. You have out to of that go hand. and take it from someone, mm. and the idea of sitting there saying, "Here I am, the Sun King. Come and offer me this," was fanciful in my view and a flaw. I mean, I think I think he would have been a great leader. Unbeknownst to many, he has a great sense of humour, good at running the economy. He would have been great, but you know, you've got to have an understanding that you need to have the strength to take it. I think there's a phrase that power is never given away; it's only ever taken. Well, if there is, it's true, mm, if there is, is such true. a phrase. I mean, think of about it. If you're following in a dark alley and someone says, oh, would you? why doesn't everyone pick me to lead down this dark alleyway? You'd all look and think, what a stupid idiot. <laughs> or if someone says, come with me, I'll grab them by the forehead and cut their heads off if they come near us. Nice. You think, mm, I'm, going, I'm going behind that person. <laughs> he used to say things like that. And I think it used to send Howard into a spiral. Do you remember when they banned... Um, and knives and forks on yes, the planes. I know. But that was, to be <laughs> fair, said. that was a, let me make this clear, mm. that was someone from the Sunday Mail who accepted an invitation to go to a rotary or lunch or something like that that, right. was, that was meant to be off the record. 
and then didn't treat it so and thought it was hilariously funny. And so our listeners know what we're talking about. You said, I don't know why they bothered to ban bloody knives and forks on the plane if I wanted to take over a plane. I could stick chopstick or something down through their eyeball and pull yeah, it out. HB pencil in the An eyeball. HB pencil in the eyeball. Or the eardrum, incidentally. That'll work. Mm. Grab them by the back of the hair and shove an HB pencil in and go tap, tap. <laughs> and believe me, they're ready to do what you want. It was very funny. But that was really your part of your whole persona was saying things that people could rem- could remember, which is part of the trick of politics, isn't it? No point in just sort of creeping along, never saying anything. No, that's true. Although I did I did once, Howard came at, and I'm about to break the rule, you know, I'm about to repeat what was in Cabinet, but it could have been at a Cabinet lunch, and said he was amazed at the Olympics how much people use the vernacular. Mm-hmm. And people were looking at it. He said, you know, this G'day mate stuff and everything, it's all the vernacular. People use it all the time. Yes. And, uh, you know, I think we'd communicate better if we use the vernacular a bit more. <laughs> And I'm something, well, I don't know why he's telling us this. I, I know that. You use the vernacular quite a bit. I know, but I couldn't. Just my guardian angel, she's, she was slack. She, was she off let having, you down that day. Off getting a, a martini. What did you say? I said, well, of course, using the word vernacular is not really using the vernacular <laughs> because no. people don't use the word vernacular. In fact, most of them don't know what it means. But that would have endeared you to the PM. Yeah, I got a good look. I think one of the funniest things. A good things, steely look. When it. I mean, obviously, you know, you're um, a big personality um, and I remember that day in the Senate you said to Collins, Senator Collins, who had a bit of a sticky end, you said it's better to have, it's better to be big in the backside than to have bulldust for brains. That's true. <laughs> I did say that because he he, uh, he was telling me that I, I told him to sit in his seat. He yes. was interjecting. Yes. I don't know what it's like in the rips, but there's a rule in the Senate that was when I was there that you must only interject from your no, seat. That's the rule in the House. And right he now. was in another seat. And I said, why don't you put your backside in the seat? Mm-hmm. And he said... He thought I was being rude about the size of his bum. Because he is a big, he was a big fellow. Yeah. So he said, oh, well, you're, you're, you're big in the backside. And I said, well, better big in the backside than bulldoze for brains. Mm-hmm. And you Which were some, is, of course, true. And I think some people called you the Artie Jack of Australian politics. But none of that ever worried you. No, well, you can't. You see, if you let, if people are out to upset you, which clearly you are, don't call someone Auntie Jack, she's big, round and fat, unless you want to knock them off their game. Well, Auntie Jack was a big personality. Yeah, but, And yeah. said, I rip your bloody arms off. The silliest thing you can do is respond. You know, people say, don't get angry, get even. That's just ridiculous because you spend all your energy getting even. Mm-hmm. You give up your own agenda to go and, you know, fix someone up. How dumb is that? They've all, as soon as you put down your papers and leave your agenda, mm. they've won. They've to, distracted you. Better to get ahead. Don't get angry, don't get even. Get ahead. Nothing annoys your enemies more. Exactly. I've agreed with that my whole life. So people... Oh, you must have told me that very early. I did. I don't know that you did agree with because we used to talk about... Uh, no, I used to be early in the Ed Koch, who had the view that, you know, <laughs> he fixed me up and I'll fix you up. He, no, what did he wrote a book say? that indicated he always did that. Ed Koch said, no, there was a man who came to see Ed Koch, who was the mayor of New York and Democrat, and he said, why did you oppose me for the local borough race in New York when it's such a small position and you're such a uh, senior person? And Ed Koch said, well, because when I ran against Mario Cuomo for the nomination, you supported Mario Cuomo. And 
now I've stopped you getting into that borough race, I've got even. And so I now always, we can be friends. No, I always get even. It's the only thing I have going for Yeah, he did. <laughs> I remember wish I had never shown you that article. I wrote it down and put it on my bathroom wall. <laughs> I knew it was a mistake. <laughs> I, this I knew it was a mistake. And actually I did I was I did behave that way for quite a few years. Mm, it's a mistake because you It is a mistake. You just give energy mm. to that when you want to be giving it to what you want to do. I learnt my lesson. I remember Downer said to me one day, and Downer and I weren't exactly close friends when we were in politics. We're better friends now. And he said, if you want to seek revenge, there's a Chinese proverb, if you want to seek revenge, dig two graves. Mm. But it's true, isn't it? Mm. Because once I worked out that um, I should do the job that I was doing as though it was the job that I always wanted, I kept moving up the ladder after that. Until then I was always, you know, desperate to get ahead. Oh, God, look, I remember when you first got into Parliament, you came and said to, uh, uh, not long after that Robert Hill and I should move on because you wanted a space. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell me nothing bad about yourself that I don't know. And you refused to go. That's right. I said, bugger off. I spent 12 years in opposition. I've yeah. only had a couple of years in government and I'm not moving. You two really hung on, actually. Why not? Well, we spent 12 <laughs> years in opposition. Here Come you've come on. in, you've had two, and you want us to move off. Howard didn't give you very good, or gave you good ministries, but he didn't give you easy ministries, did he? No, I think he gave me ministries knowing, for example, the, the first one was a huge portfolio with, as you say, about a quarter of the government's savings. Education, employment, youth Employment, affairs. education, training and youth affairs. That's right. A huge portfolio. Huge enormous cut. spending in an aircraft carrier, almost impossible to turn around at any one mm. point. But they knew there were huge savings out of that. They knew that that would be politically costly to whoever undertook those savings and they didn't care. If 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 no, I fell over, why well, would you put a, you, why would you put a good friend into that job? No, because they'd you know be knifed to death. Well, Better to, to put uh, someone you didn't care about, and if they lost a lot of blood, bad luck. And one because you were also in the Senate, so yeah. you couldn't lose your seat. And two, Howard didn't really care if you prospered or not. Mm. So that mustn't have been much fun. Not really, but it was a great sense of accomplishment to achieve um, those savings when I think nobody thought it could be done. And then having given you that really difficult job, <laughs> you, then got, you then got demoted. But to his credit, he recognised and brought you back, but then gave you still a hard job, which was social no, security to start with. Yeah, social security, it's, that's then, a hard job because there are lots of constituents and, you know, someone makes a mistake in the computer programming. And you get blamed. And you have to wear the blame from it. And when you think about it, I don't know how many million now are on some sort of benefit, but really lots. I think it was about seven million getting something uh, at that point, might be a, a tax rebate or whatever. But if you multiply those people by the, you think of the opportunities for mistakes, they have change of age, that might shift them into an entitlement or not entitlement, change of address, children born, people dying. Sure. You know, losing your job, getting a job. You put all those combinations in and the fact that we get it 99% right is it's still amazing. amazing, but they're still the 1% are very noisy. Yeah, and they're, they're entitled because they've been messed up. But the harder job, even after that one, was immigration. Oh, I loved immigration. But that was tough. Oh, was it's you? a tough job, but that's who we are. We are an immigration country. But you had to put people, but there was the unhappy part of the job there where we had to, all these people in detention because we had to stop the people smugglers. And we all understood that we had to stop the people smugglers, which was the right thing to do. Was that the best job, immigration, of those ministries? Well, I mean, Commerce and Customs was the working with the federal police. I mean, they're, they're putting their lives on the line, a lot of them every day. Terrific job, but not, in, unfortunately, not in cabinet. And stuff. Unfortunately, not in Cabinet. Um, but immigration, cabinet, as I say, it's really... who we are. We're an immigration nation. Us, Canada, the United States, we're the big three. 
us, Canada and the United States. Big three immigration nations. Yeah. Well, I suppose you regarded it as a great privilege then to be in the it Minister is. of It's the core of who Australia is. If you're not a full-blood Indigenous Australian, you've got migrant blood in your veins. That's who we are. Well, you did your own song. I did, indeed. What's it called again? I don't know. I didn't give it a name. Oh, you did? But it, I did. <laughs> you launched it in 2015 I didn't launch it. Someone, or someone asked if they could put it to music. They didn't do a very good job, actually. Um, I didn't like the music that they did. But anyway, uh, it's, it was a sort of a... D- it was done, a national song. Put to a, an anthemic music, if you like. Like Wattle Day. And I've it got started... It down here somewhere. Hang on. Oh, I know, Under Southern Stars. Under Southern Stars. That's right. That starts home to first Australians. In now, that is important. What, a, what, a, what better place could you start a, a, an anthemic song for Australia than home to first Australians? Do you get any royalties out of that yet? Those people did ask me to join that copyright. You should, the copyright what? agency. Yeah, I don't know that I got around to it. Oh, yes. No, I'm still getting money from my first book through the copyright agency. No, well, good on you. It's great. Not very much. Tiny kind of little bit, actually. So do you remember the first day you were in Cabinet? Do you remember the swearing in? Did you feel like it's all been worth it? No, I don't, actually. I remember going to the government house for the, the swearing table? in and then going to into the Cabinet, but I don't, I don't remember. I mean, there were so many since then. That's right. Meetings, they all just merge into one, really. There's something that particularly exciting about being in the Cabinet of a country the size of Australia that has you know, quite an important role in the world, though. It's a real privilege, isn't it? And I think we'll have a growing role in the world. My own view is that this dispute or disagreement is going to be ongoing between China and the United States. I call it rivalry. I think the United States has lost an appetite to be the leader of the free world. I think they're sick of paying money and losing their children to fight wars for people who are endlessly ungrateful that they were there. I think the American citizens, a bit like in World War II, were, who were very anxious about going in, they didn't want to. I think they've lost an appetite for that and, and that leaves a bit of a vacuum mm. uh, with China facing an economic downturn because of the pandemic and dealing with being a bit on the nose with a wide range of countries because of the pandemic. I think the middle order countries have got an opportunity and they should step up together. And like, so there are like now three do. players. There's the United States, China and us. Well, I remember being in the Cabinet, but I also remember you humiliating me in my very first Cabinet meeting when I was a junior minister come to present to the Cabinet. Do you remember that? I think you humiliated yourself. <laughs> <I think so. laughs> because you went around, you got a no, you said, can I just say, and had it or allowed another go and still got a no, and then when Han said no... You had another go. So I made the loser sign to you. Well, I didn't like, I thought you should have been a lot more encouraging. You wouldn't speak to me for four months. And I... Um, or three. I haven't included that in my book. The wonderful thing about writing a book <laughs> is that you only include the bits that you want to include. <laughs> <laughs> but at least you can recognise that you see, you saw other people do that. Oh, it was terrible because then as a cabinet minister sitting there you know, in the middle of the room as opposed to at the Some end of the Some whacker come in and want more time to re-explain oh, what they've already you. explained. You've already said no and you want to say, shut I know, up. I remember the look on a couple of their faces. I can see them right now because, as you know, the Cabinet would basically decide before that poor person came into the room. Not entirely. But almost yeah. always decide whether they were going to you know, mm. entertain the idea or not. 
And I remember a couple of times young junior ministers coming in and being told before they'd almost even opened their mouths, it's okay, uh, you know, we're not going head with this or we're, <laughs> we're doing <laughs> this in a different yes, way. Yes, but if I present to you, you'll change your mind. Yes, and, 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 there, and there would be ministers who would put their finger up and start to talk and... Uh, Abbott or Malcolm would say, no, no, it's okay. No, we, we've got this. Yeah. And they'd try again. And I'd think, oh, God, I've done that. I've been there. I've See, I wasn't there. humiliating you. I was being helpful to let you, you probably were. learn to get out of there now. I thought, oh, God, I've done that. How humiliating. <laughs> and then all the cabinet ministers would talk about it after they've gone. Oh, why was that person wasting our time? Exactly. Anyway. So you've never written a book. Why don't no. you write a book? Uh, you should. Uh, no. It's I very don't think good so. for the mind. Maybe. And Maybe. you get to write the history. I wish I'd kept notes because then I, it would be good. No, it's not that I don't remember. When we have conversations, I remember lots of stuff. I kept notes. But Yes, I know. Um, <laughs> but I didn't get into Parliament in order to write a book, so I didn't keep notes. No, I wrote... And also I'd like to be sort of not brutally honest. That's normally my fashion is to be brutally honest because then people can't misunderstand what you think. But I don't know that if I want to be honest with someone and say this person's a complete idiot, that I want to write that in a book. No. Because it's humiliating for them with everyone to read that, you know. I just So I think if you write a book, you have to be a bit nicer and I don't know that I want to Well, be. I kept notes of things that I thought were important conversations. Yeah. Because Why I not? thought I want to get, if, if I do write a book one day, and I kind of thought I probably would, uh, then I might, I, I don't want to get that wrong. No, that's fair enough. Well, thank you very much for Pleasure. coming on Pine Time. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed it. We enjoyed having you on. I think I did. We enjoyed having you on. Thank you very much. Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.